Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions featuring a short presentation and then discussion between portfolio manager Hugo Lavallee and moderator Pat Bolland. Hugo, who just celebrated his 20th anniversary with Fidelity, manages several funds for Canadian investors, including Fidelity Canadian Opportunities Fund, Greater Canada, and Climate Leadership. Hugo is known for his contrarian investment style, seeking value in out-of-favor stocks. Today, we'll hear where Hugo is finding opportunities in this year's choppy markets, and he'll share his perspectives on how this current bear market compares to market cycles of the past. Hugo also takes questions from the live event audience. Also, please note there were a few slides displayed to the live audience. Today's podcast was recorded on October 14th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So it's good to uh, be here in Arizona, one of my favorite states in the Union. Thanks for being here. You know, low taxes, margaritas, sunshine. You know, the high is going to be 13 degrees today in Montreal, my hometown. So I wanted to, I always say I'm a contrarian investor, right? And, you know, I look for stocks that are out of favor and unloved and try to use time as our competitive advantage. But I thought, you know, in this squishy market, this, this, Pretty bad bear market, you know, two recessions in two years. You know, nobody's really happy except for Dan. You know, uh, Mark's back at wearing a shirt on stage, so it's a pretty big bear market. <laughs> I thought I would open a little bit into the metrics I use as a portfolio manager, the experience I have gotten over the last 20 years. What tools are in the toolbox? What things am I looking at right now in this bear market? Who knows when it will end? But historically, coming out of a recession, my contrarian style does quite well. So hopefully you find this interesting. It's a new presentation I worked on. If you guys like it, I'm going to keep rolling with it for a little while. Otherwise, I'm going to turf it. But I thought it'd be appropriate to give a little bit more details of what I'm doing right now. So to make it a little bit more interesting, we're going to do this like a video game. So there's three levels, and we're going to try to level up every time. So let's start as a new player, or commonly known as a, a noob. So, you know, what are things that work for me sometimes that are interesting? And price to earnings, free cash flow yield. They teach that in school, and it definitely works. And those are some things that I use sometimes. So let me give some examples. Dollarama during COVID. Every quarter is squishy. There's always something going on. Uh, shopping malls are closed in Quebec. There's $50 ramas in shopping malls. So they're open, but there's no foot traffic. 
Ontario goes to essential goods only. So now there's like 40 or 60% of those stores they can't sell. For whatever reason, Quebec decides that every store is closed on Sundays, so they miss a sales day. Because of that, the P multiple compresses to 19 times earnings. Not super cheap, but pretty cheap for them versus their history. Now, we knew two things. Eventually, COVID would kind of go away, and they would also uh, introduce new price points. And now we're here, here we are today, they're rocking and rolling, the P multiples expanded, and you just needed time to get through this. But you could buy a really, really good business at a lower multiple than what they normally trade at. Another example, Couchetard, when it was leaked in um, the newspapers that they were looking at Carrefour, the French grocery retailer. Stock went down to 12, 13 times earnings. But that deal was probably going to be 50% accretive to their earnings. But there was just a lack of information, lack of confidence, the stock selling off. You're dealing with imperfect information, but you know they're very shareholder-friendly management. It's a pretty good business, and it's trading at a lower multiple. Buying Constellation software 10 years ago at $90 at 13 times earnings. So that stuff works. And it's satisfying, but they teach you that in school, so it's kind of semi-satisfying. It's a little bit like... uh, beating Bowser when you play Super Mario. You know, it's hard. It's not a super big challenge, but it's still satisfactory. So let's level up here to boss level things. What what if a company's not making money? Is it worthless? Some companies will be worthless, obviously, if they never make any money, or every company will be worthless if you never make any money. But these are metrics that I use from price to book, which I use in base metals, to price to net cash, which is kind of self-explanatory, but also EV to sales, which works in software, EV to gross profits, EV to recurring revenues. So if you, you know, a few years ago, I found a little French company called Axway that was trading at two and a half times recurring revenue. Right now, I can't name them, but there's a few uh, king companies in software that are trading at below three times EV to gross profit, two times EV to gross profit, two and a half times EV to gross profit. And I like EV to gross profit because somebody can come in and kaizen all the costs underneath. So we know, for example, for small software companies, being public is a 1.5% to 2% uh, profit cost, right? So if you're bought, you're either privatized again or you're bought by a, more, um, a, much, higher, a much bigger organization right away, 1.5% to 2% margin left. So there's a lot of overcapitalized balance sheets because of the excess of the last two years. And now as the stock price are selling off, you're starting to look at market caps or even the gross profits, which are pretty close to their, their, their low multiples. There are some companies that are starting to trade pretty close to their cash balances. Now, they're money-losing companies, but you're either thinking about there's going to be a takeout or there's going to be uh, some newfound fate by the management team, especially in North America. Uh, It's pretty rare that companies want to be perpetual losers. It happens sometimes that the management team just runs the company into the ground, but it's pretty rare. Sometimes you'll have an activist, you'll have a CEO change, you'll have a a board-level change, you'll have a takeout. And when it happens, you know, you wake up in the morning, you've had a takeout. You know, that's one thing I hadn't had really the last two years. I've had two takeouts the last two, three months. There's another one that's rumored in the press that I own, so we'll see. But I, with that style, you're, you're waiting for either the market to turn or having a takeout. These stocks are not working at all right now. Losing money is really, really out of favor. But if you do balance sheet investing, it, if you're being patient, it can work. And when it works, it's satisfactory, a little bit like uh, beating Goro at Mortal Kombat. 
You know, it's quite the challenge. You did something different, and it feels good. So let's level up to uh, final boss level. One thing that I use that I think is a little bit specific to my style. What happens when five years ago, six years ago, Chipotle is poisoning their customers? What happens when Five Below loses 96% of their revenues because they're forced to close all the stores? What happens when the racist founder of Papa John's makes racist comments, and because of that, people rightfully boycott the brands? And same-store sales fall 15%. The board kicks him out. He owns 30% of the company. He's punting all his stock. How do you value those companies? Like Chipotle, earnings per share went from $13 a share to $0.75 a share. Stock, the P multiple exploded to 300 times earnings. So how do you value those companies? One trick I like to use is price to previous peak. So, you, so Chipotle, for example, it went to 250, and it was trading at roughly 15 times the previous peak earnings. Papa John's traded to 14 times previous peak earnings. On Five Below, we look forward to you know, what earnings could be in 2022 when we're staring at into the abyss in April 2020, and we thought the stock was maybe 10 times earnings. So looking at the past to predict the future, and will those companies be bigger companies? Were they fully optimized? Because sometimes some companies will never make past peak earnings. But you're looking for a really good business that's really, really struggling right now. It's really hard to buy. Remember when I bought Chipotle, uh, Mark said, nobody will ever eat there again. And I'm like, well, you know, that seems a little uh, intense. But in the moment, it certainly doesn't feel good. But what we knew as facts was there were 37 Chipotle outside of the United States. So you know you have a lot of white space to grow into. Papa John's is really underdeveloped internationally. Five below, they could still have a lot more of those boxes in the United States. So you're focusing on the long term, looking uh, at the, the pass for earnings per share, staring right at the balance sheet in the short term to make sure they have time, and then you hope for something positive to happen. And oftentimes it does happen. And when it does, it's very satisfactory. You know, it's a little bit like beating Mike Tyson, aka Mr. Sandman at Punch Out. You know, very challenging. You know, you're, you felt like you're all alone in your battle, you know, staring at a company that are gonna have horrendous quarters. But eventually things get better, management team changes, and things look up again. So, these are the tools that I've used. You know, 20 years of working with other great investors at Fidelity Canada, being lucky enough to have the Will Danoff and the still Steve Weimers and the Anthony Bolton, you know, as, as coaches and mentors and some, some of these teachable moments. And that's really what Contrarian Style is all about, is looking at different situations. And when the price is in your favor and when you think you're going to double your money over two, three years, and the balance sheet's all right, you gotta you know, plug your nose and close your eyes and take the plunge. Because if you don't do it, then you'll never do it. You know, you're gonna wait for things to, to get better and you're gonna buy the stock prices at much higher prices. So that's what contrarian investing is all about. And with that, Pat, if you wanna join me on stage. You like this kind of a market, don't you? Where things, where things are getting up off the mat. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not enjoyable in the moment. Um, COVID, like, wasn't enjoyable for three weeks. I worked so hard. Um, we all did. 
but uh, you're trying to reposition for the future, right? It feels different than COVID. Like, you know, I think we've just been used to bear markets that V-shape. And maybe this one's a little bit different. You know, we have to cycle the post-COVID excesses, higher rates. Maybe you have more of a garden rate, uh, variety recession. So we'll see, right? I have no clue. We need time. But uh, I, joined in, I joined Fidelity in July of 2002, and I saw the tail end of just people being ex- exasperated with a bear market, right? Mm. Stocks, unless they were value stocks, it just hadn't worked for three years. A lot of tech, tech stocks were cheap. You could buy Tundra Semiconductor at a buck fifty with a buck twenty-five in net cash. Eventually, they hit a product cycle. The stock went to thirty dollars. You know, um, Research in Motion was eight dollars a share, and the stock price, and they had six bucks of net cash. I remember the CFO coming to see us in Boston, and Dennis Cavillman, and asking, "Well, where's everybody? Right? Nobody's here anymore." And um, and actually, that that whole experience helped shape my style, I think. Uh, but I've seen the tail end of a two three year bear market. And so I don't know which one this is going to be. Maybe it feels a little bit like the, more like this scenario. Who knows? But, you know, you want to lean in into those lessons, you know. And I think it's been, it's been a frustrating market for me, for sure. I didn't, I didn't expect uh, two recessions in, in two years. I kind of finally saw the light uh, in mid-July, so a little late. So it's been frustrating. But I feel that the more we go down, the more things are coming my way. Mm. And, uh, you know, you got to... Keep your eye on the prize and on a rolling three, five years, and hopefully it'll just give us an opportunity. And like I said, 2003, 2009, 2020, I can't predict the future. But historically, when we come out of a recession, all the hard work we're doing right now eventually pays off. Okay, so I do want to talk about your metrics and how you go through that process, if you will. But before we do that, we should talk about all your mandates, because you have several that you work under, uh, geographically, market cap, those kinds of things. So walk me through what you've got, and then we'll finish up with the Climate Leadership Fund as well. But uh, what do you have out there? Yeah, so um, Canadian opportunities, small mid-cap Canadian stocks, uh, 90% in Canada. That fund's actually close to new money. Uh, we're trying to protect, you know, the investors that's believed in us over the last few years. Uh, so it's about, well, it hit 3.7 billion. It's smaller now, but uh, so it's if you're Canadian fund for Canadian investors and small mid cap, Greater Canada, more best contrarian ideas, uh, mostly North American focus can go up to 50% into foreign ownership, and climate leadership, which global mandate. On the decarbonization trend, carbon's not the future, trying to put the fidelity research through that lens. Now, before you ask me which one's my favorite fund, <laughs> I have three kids. I have three mandates. Of course, I have a favorite one, but I don't tell anybody. So, <laughs> Dan has two. Uh, okay. Then talk to me about the climate leadership, because I think that's interesting. Is it negative screening that you have to use, or how do you define what climate leadership is? No, I find with climate, you know, it can sound very negative often, and I I try to be more optimistic, right? So it's not so much negative screening. It's more we have these three buckets, leaders, reformers, solutions, and finding names that fit into any one one of these buckets, right? So um, solutions can be uh, obviously solar or EVs, but it can also mean uh, sustainable uh, fuel, right? Sustainable aviation fuel. It can mean... Uh, renewable diesel that has 70% less carbon content. It's, a, it's an oil and gas process, but it's a real solution. Mm. It might be a, a carbon pipeline, right? That can be a solution. 
leaders, it might be a company that's in a field that people don't necessarily associate with climate, but there are some initiatives or there's a tailwind to their business. So for example, when I launched a fund, I thought, well, people probably wouldn't like it if I had railroads in the fund. And I think railroads make a lot of sense from a leader's and a solution perspective because it's about 70% less carbon content than trucking. And trucking became really popular during COVID because mm. we're out of inventory. We need everything fast. And now that's obviously going away. So uh, we think railroads have a 20-year tailwind of uh, stealing share from trucking. Mm. And there's eventually a path whenever that happens on decarbonization as well. But they can win today. It's a solution today. They're leaders today. And on reformers, like I said, you can have these oil and gas companies that... Um, have a different angle, you know, it can be a refining business, but there's renewable diesels. So, so I try to be more optimistic than, than shaming and, and all this other stuff or negative screen, screening. It's more, hey, you know, we're Fidelity, we're looking at global stocks. Let's just, you know, there's no reason why we can't find 40 or 50 that makes sense for uh, a climate mandate. Okay, but why set up a separate fund to do that? You could have done that in your other funds. No, right? because the promise, it's a good question, because the, uh, the promises we had made to, my, to the clients in Canada Opportunities or Greater Canada could not fully exploit um, the, you know, the carbon's not the future team, right? I think it needed its dedicated fund. You know, if you had Canada Opportunities, obviously there's going to be osmosis, Obviously, the Venn diagrams are going to intersect at, at some point, right? But I don't think it, it's fair to the promises I've made to contrarian investing for Greater Canada or small mid-cap. We needed a different product for the carbon lens. We needed a global product, frankly. I mean, that's just right there. We, needed, we need global solutions to global problems. So, so we needed a separate product. And I, and I think it was good because it gave us that thematic purity it's not a broad ESG fund. I really put climate in front of everything else. It's not even an environmental fund. It's really a climate fund. And then you look at all the research, and because I think right now it's the biggest climate fund at FIL, people come, the ideas come to me, right? And um, so I think we got a really good team. Uh, we got a good theme as well, the decarbonization. Frankly, I just have, have to do a better job picking stocks. And, you know, when we come out of this recession, I think, you know, it's going to be a good mandate like the other ones, hopefully, and working really, really hard. You know, Dan talked about earlier his long, short mandate. You know, I didn't take pilot lessons, but, you know, how do you get excited about the next 15, 20 years at Fidelity? And for me, it's really that this mandate. You know, I think we've done a good job with Kane Ops. We've done a good job with Greater Canada. We're going to keep doing a good job. But how do you... How, how did I get excited about, hey, you know, I'm going to be here another 15, 20 years. How can I try to do something different? And that's what, you know, was the genesis of... Did you want to leadership. make a difference for your own kids? or? Well, I think we were very clear that this is not an impact fund. Obviously, my kids are proud, so that's good. So, um, but, you know, we, I think we've been very clear, right? There's a lot of, you, you hear the term greenwashing. And so I think from the beginning, we've tried to promise that this is not an impact fund, right? There's $500 million in the fund. We're not taking $50 million to make a green hydrogen plant. If I buy 2%, if we buy 2% at Tesla, it doesn't matter to Tesla's cost of capital. Let's be realistic, now, in an alternative universe, you know, maybe in the past, there could have been some, some impact stories. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that if I run this fund for 15, 20 years, I'm able to share a few stories. I'm really hoping. 
right? Like we financed something and it's really neat and it was undiscovered and they really had a, you know, a real impact. But it's really a trend fund. You know, it's a really decarbonization. The North Star is decarbonization. You know, carbon's not the future. And this is what it is, really. We have some questions about individual securities that are in the um, portfolios, various portfolios. And I, I'll get to those eventually, but I want to walk through your process because I found it fascinating that you, you gamified, if you will, the processes you go through. Which is the more important metric? I'm looking at price to cash flow and price to book and enterprise value to uh, you know, gross profit and recurring revenue. Uh, which one do you think is the first screen? Well, it really depends where you are in the cycle, right? So, so 18 months ago, P was really cheap, right? P multiples were really, really out of favor. And I should have done more, but I did some. Uh, nowadays, I'm less interested in low P. Um, I was saying earlier, the one style I'm really leaning into is the second bucket, like uh, EV to gross profit, EV to sales, um, EV to maintenance revenue, price to net cash. And that's not working at all right now. It's not working. Unless you get a takeout, it's just there's no bottom to these stocks, uh, which means they're kind of getting cheaper all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that o- over on a two, three-year view, I'm going to have some takeouts. I'm going to have some companies that will turn it around. And so that's the bucket I'm leaning in. I think in Europe, you can look into the last bucket, right, price to previous peak earnings. Mm. So if you're looking at German industrial companies, for example, right now, and you don't know what kind of winter they're going to have, right? Maybe the government's going to shut them down for, for energy. Um, so you might have an opportunity there to look at. Like one sector that I don't own right now, but I'm trying to think of is um, German chemical manufacturers, right? So energy-intensive process. And for so many reasons, it's not going well at all. And the pro- profit margins are being squeezed. So that might be an opportunity uh, as we roll into. You know, I was up, I was up at, you know, it's a grinding business. You either like the grind or you don't, right? So I was up at 3.30 uh, last night because there's a stock in Europe just just blew up. And it's starting to look really cheap. It's a software company. And it's starting to look really cheap on the free cash flow they've generated over the last five years per year. But right now, you know, they're cutting their license revenues, and it's really bad. The stock's down 20%, but the stock's down 70% from the peak, and that's what I was working on, um, you know, last night. My wife wasn't too happy because I'm lining up the bedroom, you know, on my phone, but, you know, you got to grind, you got to work, and right now Europe's not going super well, and you can sometimes anchor to how good were things in the past. Is it reasonable that over two, three years things can go back to where they were? It's going to be a really tough winter. It might be a really tough 18 months. But, you know, like gas in Europe is like 60 bucks. Like, you know, how much higher can it go? I mean, it's, it's really something to think about that. And energy costs are, I guess, all-time highs. Um, so let's look at stocks that are being affected by that. So less P multiple, mm-hmm. more balance sheet investing, more price to previous peak earnings investing. You mentioned software. The whole tech space has been badly beaten up. Is that an, an area that you're starting to investigate more? Yeah, I, I always do tech. Um, and I was probably a little bit too tech heavy earlier this year. But uh, there's definitely some balance sheet investing to be doing in tech right now. Yeah, And some small names. I mean, I could name a ton of them, but um, I can't. Um, because we're involved in them, and you know, maybe names that people don't pay attention to. You know, these these companies that went public and 
November of last year. They've been public for less than a year. But what they did is they raised a lot of cash because the market was so exuberant. And now you're staring at a stock that's down two-thirds, 75%. They're solving a real problem, but they're burning a little bit of cash. Some of them have 10, 15 years of cash ahead of them. So balance sheet's not a problem. And the truth is, either they're going to turn around or they're going to get bought. And uh, I've seen that enough times in my career that I think that's what's going to happen. Okay. Um, the list of your top 10 holdings in each one of your funds was given out, and I think somebody saw it because they're asking a question. How does Nike fit into your climate thesis in the Climate Leadership Fund? Yeah, Nike's been a tough stock for me, but I think it, just, it makes sense from a climate perspective because there's so much carbon encoding. And, you know, I wish Patagonia was public, but it's not. So Nike, you know, there's, there's new shoes like the uh, Hippie which is all recycled material. Right now, I forget the name of it, but there's a brand new hoodie they're coming out with, and it's 70% less carbon content than a regular hoodie. So, you know, Nike's really aggressive on the move to zero to 2035. Mm. And even though it's apparel, if you can buy high-quality stuff, they're really, really focused on carbon, so that's why I think it makes sense. Electric vehicles have gained popularity as we've started addressing climate change. Environmentally, it raises the question slash concern about the amount of landfill growing from discarded batteries from the EVs. How do you address this? That's a good question. Um, Look, there's no easy solution to anything. Hopefully, we'll do a better job recycling. Really depends. I am a believer in EVs. Depends, obviously, what kind of electricity you put in it. One thing in general... You know, I don't want to deflect the question, but it's really like you should all keep your, you should all drive your vehicles into the ground, right? And that's one way to, to change that a little bit. So I grew up in a family where my parents changed their cars every three years, and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So you just try to keep your stuff longer. Um, even with the batteries, you know, the problem, there's, the problem with an ICE car, so much of the emissions come from the tailpipe. So there's really, as far as I know, no solutions there that EV in a market where, even though they're more polluting to manufacture, we've got to do a better job recycling towards the lifetime lifetime of the vehicle that can still be really net beneficial as long as it's carbon or close to carbon neutral electricity that you put in. But on the flip side, if you drive your car into the ground, the fuel efficiency of the car is brutal by the end. I don't think it's that brutal. We're trying to do it with my Tesla. We've had it six years, and it's still pretty good. The, the efficiencies of Teslas are pretty good. So it's, I think it's 90% battery efficiency to 250,000 kilometers. So, look, if you're driving to New York, maybe you have to stop one more time, but the kids are happy they get out of the car. So, you know, I think <laughs> sometimes you have to make small compromises. So uh, it's okay. Speaking of the states, you have an interesting opinion I read once on your Inflation Reduction Act opinions. What, what, and how does that play into the portfolio? Yeah, so I read the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are pretty dry uh, documents, you know, written by Congress. Um, I think the way I think about it is you needed a war for the Americans to get together on renewables. And I think, you know, energy security is national security. And to me, it's all very consistent, and it all comes together. Unfortunately, in the world, there's not enough freedom-loving countries like the United States and Canada you know, to feed the world's energy needs. And we're always hostages to other countries. And you saw what happened with OPEC last week, right? Cut, cut production. So you need all forms of energy. 
So, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, we can talk about it. There's, some, there's EV credits, but EVs are already really sold out, so it doesn't have uh, a huge impact. Um, there's solar credits, which are a big deal, up to 30% if you're an American uh, resident on solar credit of install. Uh, one of the things that I was focused on, uh, there was a BTC extension, Blender's tax credit extension for, for, for two or three years, um, which, a, which is a big deal to renewable diesel producers like Darling. For the first time, as far as I'm concerned, there's a buck fifty SAF credit, which is sustainable aviation fuel. I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to fly an electric plane, right? At least not like to Europe or something. So how do we decarbonize that? Uh, so sustainable aviation fuel is one of the answer. So there was a few nuggets, but look, the market's pretty efficient, right? That came out of left field, a little bit. Stocks re-rated right away. Mm. Uh, stocks went way up that day. So for me, it was maybe a little bit more of an opportunity to trim, right? Because it was unexpected. And that's the thing about the Climate Leadership Fund is I think we gave ourselves enough degrees of freedom to be nimble, you know, to still fit my contrarian style into it. So when the, you know, when the stocks are out of favor, you get a little bit more aggressive. And when there's pieces of good news and they re-rate, you can sell into that strength. How are you playing? So energy is obviously a theme in that. But how are you playing energy in the greater Canada and the Canadian opportunities? Are you playing it more traditionally in kind of oil and gas? A little bit. And to be, to be uh, clear, uh, you know, missing the nat gas trade was my biggest detractor this year in Canadian opportunities. Mm. Um, some of, some, some of that decisions a little bit climate. A lot of the, and people think it's all climate, but it's not. I mean, there's two reasons. Once, one is, once the stock's re-rated off the bottom and they're up five, tenfold, it's really rough. It's really difficult for me and my style to chase that trade. I'm not a good chaser. Mentally, it just breaks my mind. Like, I can't do it. It's one of my weaknesses sometimes. Sometimes it's also my strength. But it's been one of my weaknesses. So tourmaline's up from five to 50 let me go buy it at 50 because I think it can go to 80. I mean, for me, it's, it's just like breaks my brain. And um, it's really, really difficult for me to do. The other one, frankly, is experience. Um, so if you remember uh, 2016, I think I had the best fun at Fidelity Canada because in 2015, guess what? I had the worst fun at Fidelity Canada. And that whole experience was uh, at the end of it I think in our business, you get the right reasons at the wrong time. And you have sometimes to take the lesson in, but not change now, but change your process in the future. That's how I think about our business. And I remember at the end of 2016, it's like, oh, great, I had the best fun this year at Fidelity Canada. And it's like, man, the pain I took the last two years was not worth it, was not worth it at all. And I had real losses of capital, like real loss of capital. Like you buy Calfrac at five, six dollars because it's down from 20, you think it's cheap, and then they're doing a financing at a buck 30, and then eventually they went bankrupt, right? So you have real losses of capital, and it really messed up my life. And I'm like, you know what? I think in the future, I'm not sure I'm that good at this sector, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be skinnier in doing that big energy trade. For me, I find metals easier. Uh, I covered gold stocks. I think you can buy copper stocks on price to book when things get difficult. Mm. You know, there's some real energy experts at Fidelity. Obviously, Joe's one of them, and we have our natural resource fund. But for me, at some point, you need some circle of competence. And I'm, an energy one is just one that's a little squishy for me. I don't do healthcare because it's never worked for me. 
So, you know, you try to focus what, what you think you're good at. For me, it's consumer, it's technology, a little bit of financials, a lot of industrials. And the energy trade in 14, 15, 16, it just, it just broke me, frankly. And I stuck with it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do less of that in the future. And I'm going to focus on making money uh, elsewhere. Um, interesting you say you don't chase uh, any stocks when they move. So you're not really in the momentum cap at all. You're, you're deep value. I like to use the word contrarian, Pat. That's the word I like to use. Um, I'm a bad momentum investor. Sometimes I will chase. I've done it in the past if I think the business is changing. Like, if you, like one thing I did okay as an analyst is chase research in motion. I put a sell at $8 with 6 bucks of cash. Then it was $24. I had tripled. And I finally saw a light. I put a buy. And I remember Don, one of my colleagues, like, are you sure it's tripled already? And then it was a 30-bagger. And if I would have kept the sell, maybe I wouldn't be here. I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, so sometimes I do chase if you feel that the winds have really changed. But in general, it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's my biggest weakness, probably, not being a good chaser. I think Mark's a really good chaser. I'm not. But it's also my biggest strength is when things get really bad, I think I can just hunker down, focus on the prize, and um, just think about, hey, you know, if we're going to double our money here over two, three years, I got to be there. And I just block everything else. I think, it's, I think my biggest weakness is also my, my biggest strength. When you get um, a good stock and it goes up, what's your sell discipline? So it's changed over the years. You know, I like to think it's a continuous improvement business, you know, just like you don't play football like the 1985 Chicago Bears. Uh, you know, you got to change a little bit in our business. And the one thing I've tried to be, I used to do contrarian on everything, bad business, good business. I've changed a little bit is my favorite contrarian ideas are the really, really good businesses with high return on invested capital that are falling on, like the examples I gave, Five Below, Chipotle, Papa John's. They're easy to talk in retrospect, but in the moment, they're super hard to buy. Because the whole world's blowing up around them. And the next two quarters are going to be absolutely horrendous. But what I like about that is when things turn, you can keep them. You know, if you buy a bad business that's really cheap, the moment it goes up, you have to punt it, right? Because it's not a compounder. Mm -hmm. But if you buy a Couchetard, if you buy a Dollarama, I might own less, right? I own less Dollarama today than I did in 2021, but I still own it. The P multiple was 19, now I don't know exactly what it is, 27, 28, 29. P multiple's really extended. P multiple's up 50%. Stock's been a massive outperformer. I still own it. I own less of it. But it makes it a little bit easier to buy good businesses because you bought a great business at a great price. Now it's still a great business. It's just an okay price, and you can keep it. It might be down from 60%. Do 2% of the fund, 3% of the fund, but I tend to keep those now more. Yeah, because contrarian eventually should become popular. Yes, and that, that was the issue. It used to drive me mental that I would like buy a stock and I'm living all the pain, and for like three quarters, I'm literally like dying in the trenches, I'm in a bad mood, and then the stock goes up 30, 40%, and I sell it to Mark, and he triples his money. And I'm like, <laughs> I live through all this pain. And I come home, and I'm in a bad mood, and, you know, I'm poisoning the family atmosphere. And I'd like, why didn't I keep it, you know? And so I've tried to, to improve a little bit on that. <laughs> you internalize a lot. I do, yeah. 
Uh, are, it's that music, I'm sure. Are you interested <laughs> yeah. in carbon capture and sequestration? Are there any uh, examples of this in the portfolio? Yes, there is an example, and I was kind of, you know, I alluded to it earlier. Um, it's not in my top 10 anymore, but I've, it used to be in my top 10. So Denbury, D-E-N, it's a carbon sequestration oil and gas company. Um, it's, uh, they have a carbon pipeline. So they used to have the carbon pipeline for EOR, enhanced oil recovery. So they would pump natural occurring carbon into the ground to increase oil um, recovery. Now they're going to use industrial carbon. Uh, so you can, and they have that pipeline in the heat map of the biggest polluting area in the United States, Louisiana, Mississippi, eastern Texas. So if you take industrial carbon, put it in the pipeline to transport it to private land when you can do carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. It's one of, then I was alluded earlier because it's been in the news for the last week or so that allegedly ExxonMobil is looking at acquiring them. So, you know, we'll see. I can't comment on that. And obviously I have no idea. Um, but that's an example of carbon sequestration. Wow, cool. I'm looking through your list of your top 10. I find this very instructive. Mr. Carwash. Yeah, it's been that's, a tough. That's stock. in the climate leadership. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's been a tough stock because, you know, they went public. It's a good business over time. I was I was looking for, in the, in the climate leadership fund. One thing I, I've been looking for is we've done really well with roll ups and, and and roll ups and rollouts and roll ups in the past. Right. Can you explain that. Well, um, kushta, right? Roll up, built new. Uh, Roll out rather, right? You build new C stores and roll up, you acquire C stores. Oh, I see. Okay. Chipotle rollout, right? So we've done really well with some of these roll up and roll out stories where they can just have more and more of these stores or they can acquire more and more of these stores. And I was looking for the same for climate leadership. You know, in, in my mind, obviously, Kushtal doesn't make any sense, Dollarama doesn't make any sense. But what can I buy that's not threatened by the EV transition? So, you know, Mr. Carwash, it's not a solution for carbon. It's actually a solution for water because it's 70% more water efficient for you to use a car wash than do it at home, and the water is recycled. But really what it is is as the world's transitioning to EVs, and I'm quite bullish on EV transition, it's not a business model that's threatened, mm. right? Because I've, I've had an electric car for six years. It's the dirtiest car I've ever had. Why? Because <laughs> I never stopped for gas. So, but I, I needed to get it washed as well, right? So it's really kind of a company that can benefit from that. In the short term, there's some leverage. They made an acquisition in Florida in December. You know, they're being hurt a little bit by prospect of recession, higher fuel costs, uh, higher funding rate. But it's an interesting one. Onyx used to own it through OnCap. And they sold it to the current PE, which I think is Leonard Green. And you can see, I like to look at things sometimes over decades, how much they can grow. And it's been a really, they're in this really squishy moment right now, but it's also been a really good compounder over like rolling five and 10 years because mm. you can acquire car washes, you can build new car washes, and you really, you can consolidate and institutionalize something that's still really mom and pop driven in the United States. Mm. They're the biggest car wash companies in the United States, company in the United States, and I think they have, at the end of last year, I think they had 340 car washes. So there's a lot of car washes to go in an industry they can consolidate. I'm also looking at two names that pop up in Canadian opportunities and climate leadership. Brookfield, Brookfield Renewable Partners and Asset Management. 
Yeah. You, you yeah. like Brookfield? Oh, bad, yes. A tough questions. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a little bit out of favor, rising yeah. rates, private equity. Historically, they've been a really good compounder, so we'll see. I actually, I own it also in the climate fund because I used to own more Brookfield Renewable, but Brookfield Asset Management became cheaper versus the, the purity of oh, Brookfield Renewable. So it was an opportunity to do a swap. Also, you know, I kind of like what they're doing with the transition fund. You saw what happened this week, I guess, with uh, Westinghouse, right? So the transition funds helping to fund some of the acquisitions. So uh, there's a pivot there. It's an opportunity for them to grow in a new vertical. Uh, obviously, rising rates is really tough for private equity. Uh, I've, I've kind of missed Brook. One, and I'll finish on that. One great way to start sometimes is what stocks did I miss the last decade? And I've missed railroads. I've missed Brookfield Asset Management. What's, what a, what a, it's a great place to start. What mistakes have I made in the past as a Canadian investor? Mm. And what companies do you think they can continue to have some runway? And I think that's just an example of that. Mm. Alphabet fit in that kind of a category too? Which is Google, I guess. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, again, you know, Dan was talking about Meta earlier, but oh, I guess I was in the breakfast, uh, the French breakfast. But I guess for me, it's more about you know, advertising is a little bit off favor, cyclical, but there's a big climate angle to Google. And there's a white paper and what they're trying to do. So, so your children. I'd like, sorry. Oh, I'd like to exit this. The one thing I'd like to do, I don't like to talk sometimes in the moment about individual securities because they're trying to fit them into a whole fund, what I'm trying to do. What I would like to do is eventually, when the recession end, have quality growth cyclicals, if that makes sense. You know, companies that were affected by the cycle, but they're pretty high return on invested capital. They're cyclical, but they're good businesses with some white space to grow. That's what I'd really like to do when we come out of this. I'd love to have a fun position that way. That's what I'm aiming for. You have three kids. Yes. Two boys and a girl, two girls and a boy. What's that? One boy and two girls. One boy, two girls. Do you have a favorite? You said you don't have a favorite. But what fun do you, what fun do you yeah, put I them into? I won't answer that. It'll get me into trouble, you know. <laughs> I was trying to tell you, find out which one was your favorite. Hugo, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. Until the next time.